Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SASPod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today, I welcome on the SASPOD Gulika Reddy, Assistant Professor in the Stanford Law School and Director of the International Human Rights and Conflict Resolution Clinic. Gulika has conducted human rights advocacy around the world, including India, Kashmir, Yemen, Papua New Guinea, and the Central African Republic. Her work has focused on inequality, discrimination, armed conflict, peace building, and the role of education in unlearning bias and fostering inclusion. Uh, Gulika, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm good. It's been a gorgeous Friday in terms of the weather. And thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to chatting. Well, thank you for taking time on this very beautiful day. Uh, we, we, we needed some sunshine to talk about your work. And I know that uh, <laughs> some of it is not uh, about sunshine. So thank you for, um, for making space uh, to talk about some difficult topics with me today. Um, some of our audience members will know last year we had Zeba Huck on the SASPod and she talked about law clinics uh, at Stanford, but maybe you can just refresh our memories. What are the Stanford law clinics and can you say a bit more about the structure of the International Human Rights and Conflict Resolution Clinic? Yeah, so the law clinics at Stanford and clinics in general are experiential classes where there's a combination of both a seminar and project work. So with the Human Rights and Conflict Resolution Clinic, the seminar teaches them the core skills that any human rights advocate would need in their careers, whether it's how do you develop a project and engage in strategic advocacy or how do you conduct interviewing or a fact-finding investigation or how do you engage in advocacy to a range of different actors from the UN to government authorities to the media? How do you engage in fundraising? How do you monitor and evaluate your work? And also, you know, not just technical skills, but also thinking through how do we ensure that the work that we do is led by the communities that we work alongside, led by civil society groups that we work alongside and thinking through things like, how do you engage in decolonial partnerships? How do you grapple with and mitigate critiques of the international human rights field? How do we reflect on things like identity and, and power and privilege and and the ways in which that's mirrored in different aspects of the human rights field. Mm -hmm. And then they apply all of these skills that they learn in the seminar to different projects, uh, which are engaging in advocacy all around the world. So examples of projects are, for instance, advancing LGBTQ rights in Jamaica and Kenya and Uganda. There's a project this quarter on addressing arbitrary arrests in El Salvador as well as projects in different conflict-affected regions around the world 
where we're working in partnership with peace building organizations to both advance human rights as well as uh, foster just and lasting peace. And so these are students working on actual projects. Yes, absolutely. So they work on actual projects and these projects have been co-designed and are led by local civil society organizations or NGOs in different regions around the world. Wow. Wow. Um, I imagine it's quite challenging sometimes to, you know, just just a few examples you threw out there. It, this is this is difficult work. Yeah, it's it's difficult, but I think often it's it's the challenge that makes it exciting. And I think clinics are really I feel incredibly lucky to be in a clinical environment where we have sort of the luxury and space to be able to step back and reflect on the work that we're doing. And we're able to therefore engage in this work in a critically responsive way. There's also space to innovate and and just sort of think creatively about how we might navigate some of the challenges that the different projects pose. Yeah, which is no doubt also very important for the students to uh, to think through. Uh, we'll, we'll talk more about some of the, the um, emotional side of this work later, but I want to ask you about um, your transnational human rights work. Or when we talked before, you mentioned you started your own, I hope I remember this correctly, you started your own NGO in India, and I wonder if you can tell us more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I started my career in India as a litigator where I focused primarily on cases involving identity-based harm. So issues involving gender, sexuality, and religion, various aspects of identity. And I found that, you know, the legislation and constitutional safeguards are clear, but often attitudes within the judicial space posed a challenge to justice and accountability. So for instance, while handling cases involving domestic abuse, having judges ask women to just adjust to their circumstances or in the high court that I was in, there was a case where a judge asked um, a rape victim to marry her rapist as a form of compromise. And I then moved into capacity building for lawyers, judges and police. And I found it was really difficult to shift deeply entrenched attitudes around identity after a certain age, especially given the process of socialization begins so early. So I wanted to focus on prevention of the issue alongside some of the accountability work that was happening in, in, as a part of my litigation practice, and therefore decided to do focus on prevention in the education space and started a nonprofit called Schools of Equality that runs experiential programs in schools. So starting age six, all the way to high school and we run these programs and the programs are a part of the mainstream curriculum of the schools that we're in so it's like doing a math or science or english class everyone in the school is a part of the program and the hope was by engaging children in conversations of equity and identity for a young from a young age you're able to then shift attitudes that perpetuate identity-based harms and so these schools where you work, are these um, public schools or private schools? So we work in both and we work both in the private school system as well as in public schools. And we work both in in uh, urban cities as well as in more uh, rural parts of India. And I, I think issues around identity are, are issues that everybody <laughs> needs to think about and grapple with and you know, we wanted to make sure the reason we wanted to make sure it was a part of the mainstream curriculum is so that 
all students, you know, regardless of whether they had already confronted or grappled with these issues, are able to engage in these topics rather than, you know, a self-selecting group of students who had already been thinking deeply about these issues. Sure, sure. But it doesn't, I mean, if I, if I, you know, I have a son in high school uh, here in California and there's always a lot of pushback against um, curriculum around what they call human biology. Obviously, people are nervous when when teenagers talk about sex and politics. And so how do you do this? How do you get into schools? And then how do you get the buy-in from the parents? In year one, we did a pilot where we ran the program in a few schools. And what we did is we conducted a baseline survey at the start of the year and an endline survey at the end of the year to measure the extent to which knowledge, attitudes, and practices had shifted. Mm -hmm. Through this, we were able to show that there had been a shift, which helped with some of the buy-in. And then in addition to more a more quantitative analysis, we did a more qualitative analysis by getting feedback from students, getting feedback from teachers, from school administration, from parents, who reported things like, for instance, that the extent of bullying had dropped in the schools that we were working in. I remember there was a, a mother who came to me towards the end of the year who said her children have been raising questions of even equality in the household, and it has led to constructive conversations about that. And she said she felt that her household and even her marriage was much more equal as, wow. as a result of the program. Um, like even just simple things like sharing household responsibilities and I think she was she was just grateful that the, the children were able to raise it but in a way that actually fostered a, a meaningful conversation in those spaces and and teachers similarly had raised some of those things and one thing that we do with students is you know in addition to having classroom conversations in the Third term, we bring in artists and theater performers and writers and other people for students to work with so that they can take action in their schools and communities. So that way they're not just talking about challenging issues, but feel empowered to actually take action. And the action that students took, whether it was by creating an art installation in the city where people could walk through it and sort of and then after that they had a con where they were able to experience what it might be like to face street mm -hmm. harassment and then students facilitated a conversation after they created comic books that examine everyday racism and sexism in their lives they they did street performances and and it was sort of the action that they took as well they that um, attracted the attention of of media and local government and other things which also helped facilitate some of that buy-in sure wow that's really incredible and and the uh the kind of perhaps unexpected results with you know people um changing the kind of hierarchies in their households and everything it's it sounds incredible and you're continuing to do that work even while you're now at Stanford yeah and I'm still very much involved in an advisory role and I think as you said I think it was that space that gave me a sense of hope and it was just little things like students created their own class constitutions and they said that if there was bullying in the classroom they would stand up to the bully even if the bully was their best friend and it was just wonderful to see like the way in which they envisioned and reimagined rights and advocacy in yeah. a way that was rooted in their own classrooms and their experiences and I think 
it was witnessing some of that that just made me feel hopeful about the role of education in in some of this learning and unlearning and affecting change. Yes, and and the the unlearn. I love that you're bringing that in. The unlearning uh, so important, and this uh, is also a beautiful seg into my next question, which is, um, I'm curious what drew you to teaching. I think I we kind of already get a sense of you as a very natural educator, but nevertheless, I'm going to ask you what drew you to teaching. What specifically drew you to teaching um, after having practiced as a lawyer? Yeah, so I actually, I mean, growing up, I never thought of myself as a teacher. I always, you know, I wanted to be a lawyer because I thought it would be an active way to challenge and shift the current status quo. And I never imagined teaching as a space of disruption or advocacy. And it was through my work at Schools of Equality that I began to recognize that teaching itself is a is a form of advocacy, as, as I said, because it can serve an important role of prevention, as well as, you know, students themselves are able to engage in all kinds of creative action. And I think at, at a more personal level, you know, with the human rights field, it can sometimes feel like one step forward and two steps back if there's a geopolitical shift or a, a change in law, you know, a whole host of factors that are uh, could be perhaps even external to the field. While with teaching, I it's always been a space that has left me feeling inspired and hopeful because at least the arc of learning is clear and visible. And um, and I think the the way it, I I have found that by engaging in both teaching and practice, firstly, you know, both of those things inform each other for me. But I think it's it's often the teaching that gives me the energy that I need to stay in the game. Uh -huh. In terms of clinical teaching, it's something I just sort of like accidentally fell into. So I moved here um, as a grad student after I had practiced as a lawyer and set up schools of equality and, and worked in that space for a few years. And as a grad student at Columbia, I, I took the human rights clinic and I was like, oh my God, there's a place where I can do both at the same time rather than doing them sort of in parallel and trying to juggle two different jobs. And I think I, I absolutely fell in love with clinical teaching and it was a way in which I could engage in both the practice, but also in, engage in, in the teaching that I was interested in. And I think it was, I think clinical teaching is quite special in that you're able to develop a clinic that is very much built on on your own vision and values and you know there's an ability to work in partnership with communities that you care deeply about you're able to choose which regions you know you'd like to focus on and I think because you don't have the same funding pressure that you might in an NGO it, it's given me the flexibility to also work on regions and that are under-researched and with communities that are underserved so and and as I had said earlier, I feel like the clinics also give you the ability to step back and reflect and be creative and innovate and engage in this work in a in a transformative and critically responsive way, mm -hmm. which has been really, really wonderful to do. And I think and I think finally, I think being particularly being located currently in the global north and you know, I taught at Columbia earlier, I'm now at Stanford, which I mean, they're both elite institutions. And I think it's 
you know, wonderful to be able to work with a thoughtful group of students to think through not only like what is the human rights work that we do, but also how do we do it and how do we ensure that our work is is led by our core values and how do we make sure we do this work in a way that it's it's led by um, impacted communities and the civil society groups that we work with. This is all really wonderful and, and I have so many follow-up questions, but I'm gonna try and kind of hold back a little to give you space to talk, but maybe I maybe you can say more about all of these, um, these kind of ethical, uh, the ethical side of this, which I hear you say is extremely important to you as a lawyer, but also as a teacher and to kind of um, have that part of the reflection space. Um, I know that you're also writing about these topics. Um, so maybe you can share some of your research areas with us and then we can talk a little bit more about, you know, how does this do, how, how, how does one do this work in, a, um, in an ethical way? Not sure if ethical is the right word decolonial perhaps is the word I'm looking for yeah so I think that you know one of the things that I'm working on right now is I'm I'm co-authoring a book with with two former colleagues of mine at Columbia who are wonderfully thoughtful teachers and advocates Sarah Naki and, and Anjali Parin and the book is on uh, decolonial human rights advocacy and it examines the power dynamics between NGOs in the global north and global south some of the harmful practices that may exist in some of these partnerships, as well as ways in which advocates in the global north may have adopted some positive allyship tactics, as well as how advocates in the global south may have used some successful and effective resistance tactics. Mm -hmm. and, and the purpose of this has been to sort of, you know, the human rights field has certain stated values but of of equality and you know mutual respect and but these values are not always mirrored mm -hmm. in the practice mm -hmm. and I think I was struck by this when I first moved to the U.S. where you know I would I remember attending a conference where there was nobody on the panel from the communities that the panel was about. And when I had raised a question about why, you know, why is this the case? The response was, oh, they don't speak English. And mm -hmm. then you would need an interpreter. Mm -hmm. And then if you got an interpreter, it would cut the time in half. And then there wouldn't be time for discussion. And, you know, ironically, they were talking about a region in, in, in the subcontinent. And, you know, I made a joke, but I was like, you know, one of the positive aspects of colonization is that we do know how to speak English but um you that know, the, must have gone down well <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I think after that I just you know one of the things that actually drew me to teaching in the global north was I I felt it was really important for me to to work with the next generation of advocates to think through how can they engage in this work in a decolonial way so that you know, so they're not perpetuating hypocrisy in some ways in the human right. rights field with this fundamental disconnect between stated values and practice. So that's been one area of research, which is on, you know, critiques of the field or decolonial human rights advocacy or decolonial pedagogy. Mm -hmm. And another area has been on more interdisciplinary forms of human rights advocacy, in particular, the nexus between the human rights 
and peace building fields. Uh -huh. So the, you know, the human rights field is fantastic at documenting human rights abuses and advocating for change, but it can sometimes be less effective at bringing together parties to a dispute where there is deep distrust or bringing together identity groups, different identity groups to engage in dialogue. And, and a big part of my work has been focused on identity-based harms globally, as well as issues in conflict where identity is central. And, and therefore I've you know, hit some of those roadblocks in terms of what the field's dominant methods and strategies um, allow you to do. While the peace building field is much more effective at bringing together parties to a conflict where there's deep distrust, but sometimes by not addressing legacies of human rights abuses or not explicitly addressing issues around identity, you know, it can prevent truly transformative future solutions. And right now, these two fields are, are both taught and practiced in silos. And I've been mm -hmm. thinking about, you know, how might we educate um, law students to wear the hat of both an advocate and a facilitator so they're able to document these issues and advocate for change but without adding to further polarization which is why this clinic is the human rights and conflict resolution clinic and some of our projects are conducted in partnership with peace building organizations and conflict resolution organizations and together with them you know an area of research of mine has been documenting how if we're able to sort of engage together and in, in interdisciplinary work, it could perhaps enhance the effectiveness of both fields. I want to ask you about the the, the quote unquote decolonial. Um, I uh, I listen to lots of podcasts and uh, I don't just create one. Uh, and I heard one mm -hmm. yesterday um, that um, that's aimed at uh, uh, kind of creating racial justice awareness among uh, primarily white people. I mean, that is the audience that this podcast is aimed at. Uh, and um, the, uh, the 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 speaker in the podcast, the host, uh, referred to a study that came out of Yale that shows that the more um, progressive white liberals, and this is a term that's used in the podcast, um, are, and the more um, mindful they are of racial justice issues, um, the bigger the chance that they actually um, kind of talk down to people of color. Like they're so worried to seem elitist and mm -hmm. then they become extremely elitist in the process. I mean, it was if, uh, part of me kind of rolled my eyes at it because it was so obvious. And of course, another part of me thought it was fascinating and um, and it, it led to some self-reflection as well. So I wonder what that's like for you coming from the quote unquote global South. You referred earlier to coming uh, into the global North for your studies where there, there is this, this sense of goodwill and wanting to make a difference and, and really affecting change. But how much self-reflection do people in the global North do and have to do to really be good at this, I guess, is my question. Yeah, I mean, that's such a great question in terms of how do you foster self-reflection without it leading to people becoming either too patronizing or too deferential right. to, to the or too deferential to the point of it being patronizing. So yes. an example I can share is I teach a class both on decolonial partnerships as well as a class on critiques of the human rights field. And 
one thing I found with even former co-teachers of mine and, and in, in the current clinic as well, sometimes when you teach critiques of the human rights field and decolonial partnerships, students have expressed that they can sometimes feel a sense of stuckness in terms of recognizing these critiques are really important, but then not being sure about how to move forward. And it has therefore been critical to combine a conversation about critiques with also you know, how do you engage in transformative advocacy? So sort of moving beyond just identifying the problem, which is important. It's important to sit with the discomfort of the problem and grapple with that, but it's equally important to also think through, okay, so how can you engage in this work and how can you do it in a thoughtful way? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I remember initially uh, in, in, there was certain, in, in some context, there was a you know, there's, on one hand, you want the, part, the work to be led by impacted individuals and communities or, um, you know, local civil society organizations. But, you know, our partners will often share, but sometimes they also want ideas from us or from the students. So, you know, it's great to ask people what their goals are, or what their needs are, what their priorities are. But, you know, they. I remember this one partner put it in a really lovely way where he said, you know, you can still give us ideas, like you can, you know, sharing with uh, some advocates in the Global North, that you can give us ideas, we don't have to take it, but that doesn't mean you don't share it, because right. that's, it's not a partnership, it it stops being a partnership if, if you're, if you're not able to share anything, right, like right. I think it's a partnership when both people can, like, of course, you should listen and learn and, and center the voices and agency, but yeah, not to the extent that Def, like it becomes like deferential becomes patronizing and right. you feel like you're constantly you know like w walking on eggshells and, and not speaking your mind because I think partners can sense that and that's condescending in a different kind of way so I think just being in open conversation about what what they'd like the partnership to look like and and what that means for for all the different individuals involved yeah yeah that sounds that sounds really um uh, helpful actually to have that kind of mindset um i clearly this is your life like i you speak with 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 uh so much commitment and and the fact that you you know if you went from law to teaching or from from practicing law to becoming a teacher but then you also have your ngo and i think for many of our listeners and many people in the academy we we struggle with drawing a boundary between work and quote unquote other life and sometimes it's it, it just all blends together and um we don't necessarily have separate identities and i imagine in the world of human rights it's it's that much harder again like you can't stop caring or i imagine it's you can't switch off thinking about things so tell us <laughs> teach <laughs> us <laughs> <laughs> lead the way how do you take care of yourself and and how do you close that proverbial office door oh my god I I, I wish uh, I, I mean I think this is a lifelong process of figuring sure. out the right balance and I you know it's interesting because I feel like it's you know the academic calendar is unique in that sometimes the teaching quarters can feel like more of a sprint and then you have more flexibility over the summer and non-teaching quarters so so even like what balance looks like can look slightly different <laughs> depending right. 
on the time of year but i i think it's important i think it's central to to think through and and actually we have a class on this of how can we build careers that are not just sustainable because i i think yes the you know the balance and well-being and self-care is important to think through sustainable careers but i think also thinking through how can we build joyful careers and actually i have a student this quarter and I just in in one of our first sessions when we were thinking about you know what is the kind of space that we want to create what's the kind of learning environment what are our shared vision and goals and you know group norms and things she was talking about how she has a tradition in her family where it doesn't matter how difficult the day is or how hard the work is they make some moment of joy and humor in every single day and you know bringing that kind of culture into the clinic space mm-hmm. And I and I love that, and I think that I remember we. I also have a really close uh, project partner who's who leads one of the NGOs that we work in partnership with, and she had shared as well when we had done this week long trip together. And she, you know, she always said she, she shared at the end of the day, if we're gonna work so hard, we might as well also have fun <laughs> at the end of the day and eat good food together, ex- you know, exchange poetry or music or whatever, it, you know, whatever is meaningful, depending on the group of people that you're working with. And I think it's been really important to me to kind of invest in the relationships with, you know, students, project partners, the people I work with. So it doesn't feel, you know, I think with the human rights field, we often think about, oh, we shouldn't be extractive, we shouldn't be, you know, colonial, but we can still be ex- even if not extractive, transactional. And I think it's been important to move beyond transactional to transformative and actually invest in meaningful friendships and and relationships so that there's joy and and time for fun, even, even in the work. And then, of course, making sure there's time for that outside of work and making sure you're able to invest in whatever it is that brings you joy outside of work, whether it's exercise or journaling or art or music or you know just making making sure there's space for other dimensions (laughs) of your life and I've often found that by making time for pause it's just you know it it just allows it allows both the the work to be more effective and creative although that alone should not be the reason to do it Mm-hmm. But you know, it 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 has had that impact, and I think it's just also allowed allowed me to make space to explore sort of other dimensions of my identity, particularly when you know, as you raise, sometimes the personal and professional identities can get quite blurred in this field, and it's been important to sort of think through this broader question of who am I beyond the work and and make space for those other aspects of myself. But also, I think what has been meaningful is to cultivate workspaces and educational environments where not just me, but everyone I work with and the students are able to bring aspects, like non-professional aspects of ourselves, even into those spaces. Yeah, yeah. I, I, For me, that is definitely really powerful, this idea that it isn't actually completely separate, but that doesn't matter because you can kind of... I don't want to say you'll bring your full self because I don't think that's ever fully true, but to to make space to also bring other parts of your personality into the workplace so that it's 
their space for joy and 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 community building that's kind of separate from work but it's also part of it somehow you said yeah. it much better than I did and I think I think you're actually I mean it's interesting you use the word full selves because I actually start the academic year with a day-long retreat yeah that is centered on building community and also centered around having conversations around identity and power and all of that and you know uh, the implications of that for the work and and I often share with students the purpose of that exercise is so that we are able to bring our full selves and our full identity like all aspects of our identities and everyone is able to sort of fully participate and the idea is there's this sort of adaptive leadership concept of relationship before task and the idea is how do we invest in these relationships before we go straight into the work because that by doing that, it definitely makes then the work, as I said, much more joyful and, and right. Well, it's really been fantastic and, and also joyful uh, talking to you and finding out more about you and your work, Gulika. Thank you so much for joining me on the Saspot today. Of course. Thank you so much, Lalita. As I said, every time I've spoken to you, it's just such a delight to speak to you. And it always leaves me feeling so energized and inspired. So thank you so much. Well, likewise. Thank you so much. I also want to thank, as always, Soham Shiva um, for creating the intro and outro to the podcast and Simrat Mataru for post-production. And I also want to urge our listeners to please rate and review us on whatever platform you're listening on, because that really helps to bring in more listeners to the podcast. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon. Come, fair.